0: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, what time is this show coming out? I never know the time shifting. Last show of June, my friend. Last show of June. All right. So you've already been to
1: NDC by now. Oh, yeah. No, come and gone. Come and, and gone. You know, living back home and safe. You know, we're yep. we're to uh, doing the summer pretty casual-like. But I am hard at work on the modern web tour. Tell uh, me about Progress it. Progress slash Telerech. So this is, it's not a huge tour. It's only three stops, Berlin, mm-hmm. Zurich, and Munich. Nice. And it's the week of July 23rd. Wow. Coming right up. Yeah, it's coming up. It'll be in July. We're going to be promoting it and so forth. I guess I'm promoting it right now. Mm. Uh, but I've locked in the guests. And they're friends of yours and friends of mine. It's going, the guests are going to be Jessica Engstrom. Nice. Talking a little web UX in Absolutely. Berlin. Absolutely. Uh, Laurent Bouillon, now of Microsoft, yeah, will be the guest in uh, Zurich. And I think we're going to be digging into some modern web stuff. You know, he's got such a history with MVVM yeah. Lite and so forth. Mm. And then the final guest in Munich will be none other than Christian Oya. Awesome. And Christian's full into Blazor. So I can't wait to see his take oh, yeah. on Blazor. And Blazor's a big topic in this tour as a whole. It's just thinking about what this next generation web tech really looks like. So I think we're going to have some fun.
0: Intelerix working on some uh, components for Blazor. So looks like it.
1: Yeah. I don't know all the details on that yet, but uh, yeah. yeah, we're going to get a peek. You're also going to talk about we and Uno. Yep. You know, all stuff we've been doing on the show. Funny, huh? Yeah. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. You'd almost think we knew what we were doing or something. And tell me about <laughs> Dev Intersection this fall in Vegas. Dev session this fall of Vegas is the first week of December. I think we're going to have a big push around Core 3 uh-huh. now that it's out in build where, you know, they're projecting down into the end of the year. Uh, lots of AI content. Of course, the amazing Kim Tripp and Paul Randall mm-hmm. doing all things sequel there. Yeah. Uh, keynotes by Mr. Guthrie. Of and course. Mr. Hanselman. Yeah, Our usual stick. And I strongly suspect a little 64-bit question at the end, if I had to guess. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And um, also, I think there's, like, if you put in a code, .NET Rocks or something, you get a discount. I'm not sure what that yep. is, but go to Dev Intersection. .dotnet
1: Rocks. Dot, just tell you, Rocks in your registration code. You will get a discount on your registration. Yeah, there you go. So tell them we told
0: you all about it. And uh, I got something different for Better Know Framework. So roll the crazy music. <laughs>
1: all right dude what do you got well
0: i don't have a dog but i used to you have a dog we talk about I our dogs dog. all the time and i had border collies growing up but i haven't had a dog in years but this was just too funny pawscout.com
1: Pawscout, P-A-W-scout.
0: huh? Oh. it's a location tag for your dog so you always know
1: where your dog is.
0: Not only do you know where your dog is, you get alerts if it goes outside of a zone. You know, you you basically if you have a problem keeping your dog at home and you want to know exactly where your dog is so that you can go pick him up or whatever, now you have a solution to that problem. And it's only twenty bucks. It's not bad. That's pretty cheap. How does yeah. that I guess it's I
1: wonder if it's just like Bluetooth range on your phone?
0: I guess, I, I'm just wondering, you know, if your dog runs away and, you know, goes up to somebody who also knows all about this thing, you know, can they hack in to find your dog's name? Can they get the dog's information so they, they know who to call or whatever? I don't
1: even know that it's necessary. It's just uh,
0: it's just one of those things. Well, there
1: is, there is a lost mode, apparently. Yeah, yeah, right. So, there you go. It is actually for, friendly, I think I'll put this on a kid. <laughs> did i say that out loud that's not right i'm sorry i'm gonna take that back <laughs> hey junior come here wear this come here put this on <laughs> why why that? <laughs> oh that's too funny anyway that's, that's cool, what i man. got who's talking to us my friend uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1343, which we did back in September of 2016 with one Daniel Pysons. Yep. Talking about feature toggles. Yeah. I uh, got a few good comments on that show, including one from Mark Simo. But This comment it comes from Christian Kern. And admittedly, it's from two years ago. Okay. I can't help but see feature toggles as just another class of settings, either application-wide or user-specific, though generally not the type of setting available for users to tweak. I had to laugh when Carl said it's just another name for Boolean. So true. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that a Boolean pun right there? So true. So really? true. Oh, save me! How can it be so true? It's either true or false. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's no. It's no, it's no yeah. There isn't we, any you, truer
0: than true. Yes. Right? Once
1: true, then true. <laughs> You're being very boolean about yeah,
0: this. If if variable equals really true,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's a language we need to develop. Right. Yeah. The the uh, uh, levels the of embellishment true. languages. Truthiness. Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get back to Christian's comment Sorry. now. <laughs> no doubt this is an important aspect of keeping a code base always deployable, but I have to wonder if we need, quote, yet another library. And he, I would, I appreciate, Christian, that you actually put the trademark symbol on the yet another library. Mm. Like, now, that's a well crafted comment. Right. When pretty much any application already has some way of managing settings. Maybe I'm biased from working mostly on small apps and R&T development code for the past few years. Still, it's interesting to see how the whole DevOps thing is pushing developers into thinking more and more about the deployment aspects of the code they write. Being a generalist myself, I strongly believe that the thinking of the whole application lifecycle can only make a project better. Great show, as always, to keep up the good work. Uh, Yeah, you know, I think... Christian comes at this from an angle I'm certainly familiar with, where you, when you own the whole code base and you actually own the whole problem space, of course you think that that DevOpsy kind of way of how our customers actually using this, is it making the money? You know, is it returning well? We call that no ops too. Yeah, right. When the organizations are small, this is much more of a formal structure around those kinds of problems. And certainly, when it comes to feature toggles, it's as much a concept as it is tooling. Right just a way to think about the problem sure and and you know the, I think the important part of feature toggles is that they're related to instrumentation as well that when you're turning that feature on you're measuring its behavior mm. so that you you know know when you would need to turn it off or what the consequences of turning it on are about so i think a little formality around that makes sense yep i remember we talked all about this in the show absolutely yeah so, Christian, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you some Music to Code By. And definitely
0: follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We
1: look him over. I'm uh, uh, um, over. I mean. Oh, save me. Really? <laughs> this is, Yeah. First, it was really true.
2: (laughs) That's really bad. Sorry. And
1: now we we have to take a pause for all of these puns. (laughs) Uh, That you know, I am a dad.
0: I get to tell dad jokes. I got a license. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's uh, let's reintroduce Daniel Petersons to everybody. Having over 15 years of experience in the software industry, Daniel has built world-class enterprise applications in the transportation, insurance, and healthcare industries. He was a Microsoft Patterns and Practices champion and is a regular advisor to Microsoft on DevOps-related topics. Dan speaks regularly at conferences such as Agile and DevOps Days, but also enjoys the local user group. After four years in the Agile and DevOps consulting space, Dan recently returned to the product world as VP of product development for TriCast. When he's not geeking out, you can find him spending time with the wife and three children. And welcome back, Dan.
2: Thank you. It's great to be back.
0: Been a couple of years. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> Happens. <That's, laughs> Time flies. Yeah. Life is busy. Any <laughs>
2: comment on the comment that Richard read? You know, I, I definitely appreciate the the not wanting to add more libraries and I understand that. I do think that that having that reliance though on a library does help and, and that space is constantly evolving just like just like every space out there. So yeah. I always recommend to to go back, take a look and see what, what fits your needs the best.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, and I I do like the sort of formalizing of this is a tool for this purpose. You use it this way because feature toggles are not just a they're not just a boolean anymore or never were,
2: right? Unless you get into quantum computing, and then it's it's both true and false. <laughs> 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 oh, that's,
0: that's funny. we all have to have a new data type pretty soon. Both bool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's jump into developer security in Azure. That's our topic today. And um, I guess, you know, it's a pretty broad topic. What do you What's on your mind these days, security-wise?
2: Well, I, I'm in charge of compliance for our organization, so I'm in charge of all sorts of boring things that nobody wants to think about. But <laughs> it's interesting when our developers have to work on a specific topic that is related to security, and, and how do we make it both Painless for the developer and compliant at the same time, because that that's my general goal. And the more we get into the various uh, new topic spaces, functions, containers, VMs, and and all the classic things that are, you know, obviously still out there, like, you know, storage accounts. And all those kind of things. Like, right. how do you make sure that all those planes are still secure for the various environments and not impeding the developers to troubleshoot or work with new technologies and, and all those kind of things as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it does seem like it's too much stuff. Like, I think it's really intimidating to try and get your head around what you're supposed to do, the right way to do these things.
2: Yeah, and, and I'm I'm trying to like lop it off a little chunk at a time. So a, g- a good place to start is is just your application settings, right? Like the the classic problem everyone has is how do I secure um, my app settings and and move on from there. So uh, the easiest one to start with is um, Azure Key Vault, which is basically the equivalent to settings um, and and that you know hardware security module or, or TPM chip. Um, on your local workstation, like how do you get the equivalent of that mm. in the
1: cloud? Mm. Interesting, because I normally think about the key vault as a place to put your SSL private keys.
2: Yeah, and it's it's turned into a lot more than that in, in recent past. Like you can do SSL and, and private keys, but now it's basically any setting that you want secured and abstracted away or managed. Right, uh, you can you can put in there. In fact, we put mm. our user accounts for our various clients uh, for file transfers and things like that Mm -hmm. go into Key Vault. Uh, Also, um, our our kind of our front end key settings. So who we're interacting with for third party authentication. So um, Auth0 we use for for our clients uh, for SSH. So all of the OAuth keys and things like that go into Key Vault. Um, Even just in general, like what any other types of secure settings that you want that aren't a no-brainer on-off switch type of thing we tend to secure in Key Vault just so that um, we can version it, we can control it, we can determine when it expires, um, when it renews, deal with the overlap between the two of those. And there's there's a lot of neat little features of Key Vault that have come out in the last year or two that, that make that a ton easier. Mm. One of the the key ones that i really like to use is the content activation and expiration dates so we end up in a lot of situations where we're dealing with a third party to transfer data and the classic thing is like do we have to get everybody up at 11 p.m. at night to do this silly password change or yeah. key change and with the way the developers work they can basically just write a polling loop inside the application to say refresh once an hour and uh, you can design Key Vault to overlap the passwords so that for a small period of time, both of them are actually active. Oh, interesting. And mm. uh, you can make both active. And with a little bit of code logic added to your application, uh, you can get it to check. You can get Key Vault to return both both checks effectively and then uh, get it to return both of those things during the same period of time. And when you say a typical
1: period of time for an overlap like this is like an hour?
2: An hour a day, you can you can really define what that what that overlap is because you can set it to expire in one day and a new one to be active. So you
1: can define whatever that overlap you want to be is. Right, but so if it's humans, I think I'd see a day making a lot of sense because at some point during a the day they're going to log in, log out, and if they move over to the new credentials, they're fine. If it's saw, so, I mean, I I totally appreciate this idea of it, what you don't want is that instant in time and at this moment those no longer work and this does work. Because no, nobody, no automation, nothing is going to be right on that moment. You just mm. want it to be a window, exactly. So, but I think with automate if it was automated things that were relogging regularly, it might just be a few minutes, just not zero. Isn't this no, the normal complaint or normal concern, or maybe this is the thing we always need to explain? All right, I've put my keys in the key vault. What keys do I need to get in the key vault? Like, do, are we just compounding a problem here?
2: Yeah, that's that's the interesting part where Azure's got some really interesting helpers to help that out with. So the classic way used to be, okay, well, I need another set of keys to get into Key Vault to validate this identity and yeah. things like that. How
1: do I protect um, that?
2: Yeah. Right. Uh, Azure Active Directory actually has this whole new idea called applications uh, that allows you to basically... Identify something that isn't a user that doesn't need another password that basically has this idea of I am an application and I am going to represent a role in the system, but not necessarily have the same privileges of a user account. And you can set those up, or you can have your you can set up roles that are allowed to set up these applications, and then you can define what those applications are entitled to do. So that application may be allowed to read just certificates or just secrets out of this key vault, right. or modify them or change them, mm-hmm. or uh, do neither uh, and have no access to them. But it allows you can define what roles you want those accounts to be able to do, and then. Based on that reading, you can define uh, how you want those accounts to actually access things. So
0: That's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, it it really is. And then Microsoft even took it one step further and uh, then allow you to say, okay, um, I'm going to create something called a managed service identity for the machine. And so you don't actually have to input those keys into it. You can basically provision... Um, that set of VMs with that identity. And just based on the fact that these are running in this container or in this VM, uh, you can then control what access uh, those keys or that VM or that role has access to.
1: And Aaron, this is all about keeping passwords out of code. Right. Hmm. So is Azure AD sort of an essential ingredient here? You have to use Azure AD to make Key Vault make sense.
2: I would say so. I think I think Azure AD is becoming that key point to anything running in Azure, period. Um, in fact, I don't know how you can kind of get away from using Azure AD in general if you're running in Azure.
1: And, and let me answer or press on another question, which I'm sure people are thinking, which is, do I have to be in the cloud with my app to use any of this?
2: Um, to use Key Vault, you do. Uh, I mean, I don't think the I think you could get away with the application not running in Key Vault like you could still use like we use Key Vault for local development as well. Like we have a developer Key Vault that they can use and test this and they can still run their local machines against that Mm -hmm. um, and set up an identity for it, which definitely is a a great first step. Uh, But I don't know how much sense it would make to run Key Vault without running the other the other pieces in the end. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah, and I've certainly seen like on premises apps where they're keeping their credentials in the cloud, like SSL certs and things like that, so that they, because it is just a good way to secure that stuff. Even like Twitter identities. But just mm. this idea that just because you, you know, you've got an operator of a piece of software that has access to the company accounts for social media. But they don't actually own, have access to the accounts per se, right? If, if you turn off that guy's account, they no longer have access to the social media stuff. Like That separation, I think, is hugely important. Yeah, and, and that's
2: definitely things you can control as part of that. You can definitely disable and enable individual secrets and individual roles and uh, even rotate things like certificates that you were talking about before. It makes it real easy to upload a new version and say, "Okay, it's active on this date and I want to rotate this out. And then it's almost completely transparent to the application, the need to to rotate out those kind of things.
1: Yeah. And you can start up. You can update the passwords on these different services on a routine basis and not break the apps. For the most part. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) There's a story in there somewhere, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. We've
2: we've gone through rotating all sorts of things, and uh, I think it, it underscores the point to make sure you have the right pre-production environments to test all of these things in. Because uh, even though there are certain things that, that make it real easy, like you can access um, Key Vault from your Azure Resource Management or ARM templates for infrastructure deployment, and, right. and that makes it awesome. Uh, but be aware of what things ARM lets you and does not let you do. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things we we learned early on was that ARM does not let you rotate um, VM passwords out of itself uh, just via the normal deployment process. There's a way you can do it, but you have to jump through a couple of hoops to get it done. And the day that we thought all of our passwords need to be changed, we just updated all of our ARM templates and ran a deployment and had massive failures everywhere because arm was like nope can't change your passwords from here sorry Uh, yeah hey
0: guys hold that thought for just one second while we take a moment for this very important message hey carl here to say that music to code by is now an app called music to flow by now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability the first three tracks are free and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. And we're back. You're listening to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. He's Rich Campbell. Dan Peasins is here, and we're talking Azure security. You know, I'm still a sucker for these RSA Secure ID fobs that I use them uh, with my bank. And, you know, it's Secure ID without an E, S-E-C-U-R-I-D. And they're a little fob that has an algorithm on that generates a, a new six-digit number every minute, every sixty seconds, and it's synchronized time-wise to something in the cloud that's running the same algorithm. And uh, in, and so it's a great way to make sure that the owner of that key is the one that's using the software, unless, of course, somebody you know you lose it or something. But the whole idea is that. There's nothing else uh, associated with the stuff online that you're using it for. So there isn't any way to know what it's for if somebody just picks it up and finds it.
1: You know, if you put a piece of sticky tape on the back of your, your secure ID and put the domain on it, that'll make it easier for them to steal.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the people who put their passwords on uh, Post-it notes and stick them on the monitors. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the combination of those and and a password is a really secure way to authenticate somebody
2: yeah the the multi-factor authentication that's out there is a great tool for being able to add an extra layer of security for people mm. and we we use that on pretty much all of our accounts regardless of whether they're they're privileged or not just as a, a second authentication method but Azure multi-factor authentication has a great, story around it so that you can basically turn any mobile device into into that second second factor and have all sorts of different methods to choose from yeah uh, including text message uh, phone call the the six digit code and my my personal favorite just the notification method so um, once the app is authenticated and and paired with your user account Um, It basically just provides a toast, which is equally secure to that six-digit code. Um, So all you have to do is unlock your phone, swipe the code, and it says, do you want to approve or deny? You just hit the approve button, and away you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, those are the kind of solutions I like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny to think about carrying that fob, generating that numbers, when you're carrying a phone that can generate numbers, too. Of course, every, everybody's got an authenticator right now. There's a Microsoft authenticator, there's a Google authenticator. Yeah. Like, there's a ton of, of apps out there for this space. There's some definite advantages to having
0: a fob that's separate that doesn't have any data associated with it. Like on your phone, you have apps that are logging into your sites, you know, and uh, somebody gets into your phone and can easily sort of get your email, get your, you know, go to all of the sites and all the things, even ones that require that fob. And, uh, you know, when prompted, you know, what's the number on your RSA fob? Oh, it's right there on the phone. But I like having it uh, separate. If, let's say it was a plug-in, like a USB thing, all right, now it's just as vulnerable to attack and hacking because it's on your computer, right? But it it really means that it's the model of having a physical key, right, because it's completely... Uh, independent of anything that's related to it, it's just on a keychain. You know, in your brain that this little key opens that door, but nobody else does. You know, so you lose your key, change the locks, no big deal. I really like that metaphor.
2: Yeah, the 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 keys, the physical keys, definitely do add a layer of security that uh, surpasses your phone. And and the phones make it convenient. And there is the case where you know if your phone is is breached and people have both your laptop and your phone. Cause it was, you know, you're traveling and they're both in the same bag and things like yeah. that. Um, there, you most people are tend to keep their, um, physical keys, their keys of their home, the keys of their car in, in a separate place. And then that still, um, gives you that extra layer of protection. Uh, so the Yubi key is the, the one that I kind of like out there cause they're mm-hmm. very small profile. They often have an NFC, um, Type of thing, which is you know near field communication, so you can just bump it up against the back of your phone, and it it transmits whatever the active code is without yeah. um, having to pair it. And, and a lot of laptops are are now mounted with with the same near field communications. So you can just bump it up against your your laptop. Yeah, I like that. The one thing that that I find interesting and amusing at the same time is if if they're interesting but they're too small. Um, I have coworkers that have kept those devices near their phone or laptop and then accidentally bump them for the code when they're when they're in a chat program or something like that. So all of a sudden you get this um, random 256-bit string show up in your chat communications and it's kind of like somebody just vomited all over their keyboard <laughs> type <of> thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay.
1: The Azure multi-factor stuff, this just makes it sort of trivial for you to add this to your app. There's not much to do. It's just part of Azure AD, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and, and the interesting part is that it becomes embedded as part of your identity, not um, part of the application requirements right. themselves. So uh, it becomes a organizational decision instead of a application one. So you don't have to go and refactor 50 apps to be able to get it to work.
1: Yeah, and that, I think that's the big thing is like, we don't want, we have never wanted security in our apps. We this really, and so we ended up with no security. And we're actually happier to have it as part of the perimeter. Like from a code perspective, it just makes life simpler. Although it still begs the question about: so, what code do I need to write to actually, you know, make my app secure?
2: Yeah, and a lot of times it comes just bringing it up to the current um, OAuth standards or things like that to be able to make it work. Um, we've we've discovered that in many cases, just making the application compatible with um, the Azure um, Identity Code helps, or um, pick your favorite third party um, to to kind of plug one that that we use and and often promote as Auth Zero. Um, and, and I was not sponsored by them to say this, but um, <laughs> we've we've definitely used them on uh, our our code base and and a bunch of other ones over the years to um, help that integration because they've really made things like the Um, I'm a third party and want to integrate process like that that bring in your third party um, authorization uh, model is an absolute seamless one and off zero and one that that even Azure is sort of kind of working towards but hasn't hasn't breached the easy factor yet. Right. And and we can you know, we're in the the HIPAA compliance space and we can get that uh, a third party um, integrated in, in less than a day or two. Uh, versus a lot of spaces that this is a weeks or months process to get integrated type of thing.
1: Yeah, you know, there are many things we talk about in context of security, but easy is not one of them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's and true. It, it, it is interesting how that delicate balance between ease of integration and operation is is often the, the classic argument. And, and we really try to... Um, balance that on a, on a given week or month and and try to keep it. But even even within that space, um, it's, it's very interesting how Microsoft has come up with their very opinionated documents on if you're running in Azure and you are Azure Active Directory only for your environment which which our organization has currently migrated to so we no longer have on-premise active directory servers we are 100% in azure ad mm-hmm. right and as part of that they're basically saying yeah you want to give up on all of those rules about your password has to be x characters long and rotated on x basis and they still allow you to define what the rotation interval is which unfortunately ours is still less than 90 days which annoys a lot of our developers yeah, but for sure. we can we can get away with it. Um, but a lot of it, like the complexity requirements on passwords, Microsoft has basically said, um, give up with that. We have our own opinions on it and here's what they are and here's why. And I've had to defend a lot of those during audits and some of them can be, can be challenging because Microsoft has come up with some very opinionated positions on it. Yeah. Hey Richard. Yeah, buddy.
0: Guess what time it is now?
1: It must be that happy time again. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's time to add to my Better Know a Framework offering today with a plugin for Paw Scout that offers 2FA for your pooch so he can without human intervention log on to his favorite sites like ebone.com, woofmail, droolbots, and even naughty sites like mailmanlegs.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's uh, Thank you. It's actually time. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Toolkit to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework-agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET Ajax, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. To check out this very innovative library, visit telerik.com conversational-ui. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is James A. Gallagher. How's this, James? Yeah. Congratulations, James. i clap for you. James just won the Telerik Devcraft Toolkit, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there at Telerik, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to join the fan club, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And uh, okay, Dan, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you
2: buy? I think the, the cliche applies to me as well with the home automation side of stuff. Uh-huh. Um I've I've already bit the bullet and followed Richard's advice and gotten all the Ubiquity
1: equipment for my home, so I have the full outfit for that. Oh, also endorsed by Troy Hunt. Uh huh. Oh yeah, he's a big Ubiquity fan. Yeah, very cool. And I, and, I, and as much as I'm a fan of Ubiquity, I don't actually have it in the house. Oh yeah. really? Yeah. I you know I dumped on the nineteen the WRT nineteen hundred AC before I realized it wasn't going to go anywhere, and so I just haven't replaced it yet. I keep looking at it growly. <laughs> but uh, you know, I thought they were going to re—they re- were rebirthing the WRT54G in a new high-power model. It just didn't actually come to pass. You know, mm. it, it, that was when LinkedIn went into Cisco and then uh, and back out again, and so forth. So it's kind of a crippled device. I should get Ubiquity.
2: Have hmm. yeah, we we replaced half of our office with Ubiquity equipment uh, last month, and we
1: spent less than $3,000 on it all. It's not expensive. That's the crazy part, isn't it? Huh. Yeah, it's great. Although you'll pay for their cloud product because you do not want to install Java on a workstation. Oh, yeah. And so this is
0: UBIQUITI, right? Ubiquity? IT,
1: yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or UBNT.com. It is enterprise class mesh Wi-Fi at you know, high-end home prices, basically. Yeah. That's cool, and and I'm I've always been a strong advocate for. Look, anything you use every day, buy a good one, right? And and you use Wi-Fi every day, sure. Uh, it's uh, absolutely, you know, talk about quality of life. And that you know, the other
0: thing is just power, right? You know, we we bought this house a while ago that probably hasn't had a power overhaul in years maybe 10 years maybe 12 15 20 I don't know and you know the the hardware the the breakers are just getting old and you know things are just turning off and turning back on again you know like what is going on here that's freaky and you you know you you have to bite the bullet and spend the money to have it yeah. checked out because power is kind of important
1: yeah it's your your house is a lot less interesting without electricity yeah yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> everything's
0: fun. You just count on that freezer always being powered, you know. And, and when it goes yeah. down for a couple of days, that's not fun. That's not good. That's not no, a fun no. discovery.
1: No, the, fr- the freezer's been the chest freezer's been off for a few days, and nobody knew. <laughs> so ask me how
0: I knew about that story because it had happened. <laughs> I had a freezer full of stuff. By the time oh. I realized Ooh. that it was connected to a breaker, I didn't even see on another part of the garage wall. It had been two or three days, so. Yeah. um Pressed the 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 breaker switch, everything came back to life. But uh, and and it all blew because I plugged a laptop into a power outlet completely on the other side of the house. It's just stupid. Bad wiring needs an overhaul. And you, you did that
1: with a laptop? Was it one of my old laptops? <laughs> yeah, <His right>. laptop's <laughs> the one you, the one I you only took blew down the power Los in LA once. <laughs> <laughs>
0: i'm not saying this is a big laptop but when richard plugged it in all half of los angeles lost
1: power (laughs) it really did happen (laughs) the timing was impeccable nice all right these are good gadgets man there's nothing more
2: fun than than coming home from a busy day at work with your three kids under six only to realize that the power has gone out in your neighborhood and you've you cannot get into your garage door, and you've accidentally locked out your front screen door to keep your eighteen-month-old from running out of the house. Oh,
1: <laughs> oh, oh! Uh, so yeah. how
0: how secure is the the ubiquity stuff?
2: I mean, have you looked into it? Oh, extremely secure. We we use it for our um, our corporate network as well. So we have. We have locked out like you can you can make sure that everything is down to port security and MAC address. And mm. and that is a level of security we've we've been able to achieve with that.
1: Nice. That's great. Uh, and, and I would happily geek out on network security for the rest of the show, except mm. that I don't know that the audience necessarily wants to do that. We're kind of doing the Debbie conversation around this. And I want to jive back into this because I think I do think it's it's interesting. The this abstraction, what code. How do I write good code that validates that somebody has the appropriate rights to run some part of the app, especially when you get granular at that? like I won't, I want you to you this privilege allows this feature, this privilege doesn't allow that feature.
2: Yeah, and and that's always the the interesting one and the management of that always becomes a challenge across across multiple things. And I think the the most interesting part of that discussion ends up being, I have XYZ security system and I want to map into your application security system. So how do I, how do I do that mapping and still make sure that I'm secure? Right. And, and onboard and off users on a, on a reliable thing. And the, the answer to that question almost always involves development. Like there's, there's never one solution out there. Right. Um, but I think the new, the new OAuth um, models and, and all the, the, New requirements that are coming with that are definitely uh, helpful, uh, if not if not the way to go forward with with user role mapping and things like that.
1: And are you talking specifically about off zero's implementation of it?
2: No, like even even the new um, I'm I'm blanking on the word here not not the JWT models, but. Um, all of the new kind of OAuth 2 specifications for role mapping seems to be a good path forward for all of that. Um, so it's, it's all industry standard. Um, it can all be mapped into your React and Angular type frameworks. Right. Um, but basically it is the classic, um, it's, it's your classic OAuth type models, but now mapped to authorization instead of
1: just authentication. And then, you know, most people seem to just simply stop at authentication, not get into the challenge of authorization. Yeah. Right. Because
2: in in the end, you all still have to track the the authorization part of it. So Bob did this in my application and I have right. to audit it and things like that. Um, the the best way that, that we've been able to solve that problem is actually with the old What's, what's known as the OMS workspace, but the, all of the, the, um, the new Azure uh, uh, log and authentication spaces because they are the right ones to never be able to rewrite kind of spaces. So I can go do all of my secure logging in there um, outside of it and I can control what my retention periods are and what my um, logging periods are so that I can go reaggregate things as as needed, but also um, eject and and get things to expire and and roll out of the space as needed as well.
1: Now, did you say OMS, like the Microsoft Operations Management Suite? Yep, the old. Um, I think it's now called the
2: new Azure Activity Spaces. I want to call it. Don't don't quote me on the name, but. Um, it's it's something along that, that space name and it, it used to be operations management suite, but it's now like all of the Azure activity spaces type of things.
1: Interesting. Yeah, because I've certainly dealt with the workspaces for Azure activity logging, but they're playing with the names and they're reorganizing this stuff constantly. I'm still trying to figure out where, where it is now.
2: Yeah, and it's now I think the the best way is the Azure Activity Log Analytics is is the thing. So it's Azure Analytics is the new space name for everything. Um, but it, it basically is the successor to the old Azure Operations Management Suite type of things. But you can log as many custom things and you can basically do all of the same types of custom analytics on it as um, the... The Azure um, event log spaces on the application side.
1: I love anytime we talk about something in Azure is old, <laughs> yeah. old as in six and a half months ago. That's yeah. right. You mean last week? Okay. <laughs> yep. But the point here is that as you start doing these off, uh, these authorization checks in your code, you are going to spit out activity log entries. So the people so that you have a log that somebody used this feature you know required that credential that sort of thing
2: yeah and it, it helps give the same level of analytics and, and plain analysis as you do the uh, Azure uh, API type stuff so all right. of the um, application performance monitoring that that all of us are, are as developers are accustomed to using you can basically give the the Azure activity logs is the same data control plane for that. Um, for your operations team and your your apps team can kind of participate in that by by writing out to that plane as well, right? And there's there's all sorts of .NET Core plus minus libraries and and also a couple of third party ones that helps you uh, write to that to that data plane. Um, and like everything else in Azure, they've got their HTTP request thing. So if you're really getting down to a level where they don't have a library, you can basically write HTTP calls to it mm. to log out things as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's, it, it's not that complicated. The question is always putting the right stuff in and then managing that. I mean, your typical problem with audit logs, like you end up with everybody's login and logouts and it just overwhelms everything else. Mm. Right, and that's
2: where, um, you know, Azure Security Center and a bunch of other things come in to kind of um, assist with writing all of that stuff and, and using the new... Um, Azure Security Center analytics and things like that. And those are the things that kind of help um, suck out all of the routine uh, logging and everything that's expected. Um, And then also help your security teams uh, do analytics and things like that on those spaces. So one of the things that I love the best is uh, being able to go into Azure Security Center Um, And then look at like the identity and access previews and things like that and basically walk through all of your events and alerts and look at your security alerts from a threat protection standpoint and say, oh, okay. Um, you know, Bob's may have logged in 150 times today, but surprisingly, two of those were from the other part of the US in the last three hours. And clearly he did not travel from, you know, southern california to new york in the last two hours right. so yeah
1: huh. just picking up on that kind of stuff but a lot of that azure multi-factor authentication and stuff does all that automatically right you i've seen the checklists of what do you want to react to and it's like did their ip change does their hardware change does their geolocation change yeah they, and you, i've had the, i had these experiences all the time now because as a person who travels as much as i do like i'm perpetually answering additional security questions for all kinds of software because you know I was in Russia in March. Oh, yeah. And, and that just lit up. You know, anytime I tried to do anything, the my software lit up with, uh, no, we're going to want an additional check of that. We're going to additional check of this. And that. There's a bunch of software I just didn't even try and use while I was there. It's like, you know, I, this can wait till I'm back in the West. <laughs>
2: Well, and and one thing that I think is is key to touch on is Microsoft just released something new called Azure Privileged Identity Management, um, and and Richard, I know you've you've talked about this a number of times on the Run as Radio side too, sure. but um, the the Privileged Identity Management allows administrators to grant privileges to groups like developers on an as needed basis, and basically they can say, you know help I need right access to production, and you can say oh okay. Um, For this resource group, for the next 35 minutes, you guys have access and I approve it and it keeps all of the audit logs and everything else behind it so that developers don't have that constant pain of, all right, can you rewrite production and give me access and please remember to delete it 45 minutes from now and everything else. And Sleep. it allows you to basically delete all of those necessary things after the fact, but at the same time, um, keep track of who granted access and why and all the notes and stuff behind it mm. um, without making it a terribly painful, pain in the rear type of process.
1: I think it's sort of the next generation features of just enough administration. I mean, yep. we've, we've been battling with sysadmins for some time to stop using super user accounts. Right. Like live in a domain count and then elevate to a privilege account when you need to do a particular task. And we started break. And it's not just a super user account. It's like the super user account is a fail. If you yeah. have to use that account, then we haven't granularized privileges properly. Yeah. And so that there are what's happening is there's more accounts now for for sysadmins that they need to take care of. But there are for specific roles that they're doing on a routine basis, and they're sort of they're not less capable, but they're specific to the certain problems. I love this idea of the privilege identity management for the for the point of view of sometimes you need to give administrator level level privileges to people that are not sysadmins for particular tasks with specific rights. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a next level piece of thinking. Yep and and the
2: nice part is, is that you can you can do that and and i've discovered that more and more my developers are also wanting to get involved with the the infrastructure deployment and things like that that they're typically not used to and that fear of oh whoops did i do something wrong is always haunting them in the background so sure. the the combination of being able to use average privileged identity management to restrict what they can do while still giving them the rights they need helps them kind of give them that cushion of well I know I have more privileges than I normally do, but at the same time, I also know that I'm not allowed to do things that will
1: completely break the world as well. Right. You do have some some guardrails up on either side of you. Yep. Hmm. And it's heavily logged. I kind of like this idea that uh, we've done a lot of this with the JEA accounts entirely. It's like these are heavily logged accounts. You do not want to be in them longer than you absolutely need to be. Like you do your thing and then you go back to a regular account. And by golly, you cannot surf the web while you have those privileges.
2: (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. Well, and even things like I can create new resources or I can edit resources are among the things that I can do. But I am still not allowed to delete a darn single thing, which means that, nope, I can't delete production
1: no matter how hard I try. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for a, a, a long time, I always advocated like as a dev, like you don't want the keys to production because then it could be your fault. Yeah, yeah you you don't want the a,
2: as much fun as it might be the it's your foot type of philosophy. Mm-hmm. You still don't want to be able to execute on that no matter how hard you try.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's the whole company's foot. Don't shoot it <laughs>
2: off. Exactly. Well, and and even one step further, like the the new Azure policy stuff. Um, Is something that I don't know how many people actually know about, but um, if you do some digging, the the, the Azure Policy stuff allows security and audit people to be able to uh, document all of the rules and regulations around. I can deploy this, but I need to make sure that. Um, I'm not allowed to turn SS mo- SSL mode off on any of my Azure web apps. And if I try to do it, it's either going to directly say, uh uh-uh, uh, sorry, I can't do that, or um, throw up a big warning saying, hey, your organization prevents this. Please provide the following reasoning as to why you're not allowed to do it. Um, and I can apply this everywhere from my subscription level um, all the way down to individual resource groups. So it's like, you know, especially in a PCI compliant world, I am not allowed to do the following things. and um, they're they're making great strides in it, but it, like version one is I have to use Microsoft canned rules, but um, they're steadily making steps towards um, being able to say, hey I can do this all the way down to any resource attribute at any level. so, um, I can do it all the way from SQL databases to storage accounts to virtual networks, and basically say these stuffs are properties that I'm allowed to set, and these things are properties that I am not allowed to change, type of thing.
1: You're very, yeah, very sensible. Uh, I'm funny not to plug Ron As Radio, but like we did do this show on Ron As at the end of May with Dana, Dana Epp, specifically talking about exactly that, using Security Center to go through and say these are sort of security rules that if changed like big flashing light needs to go on or don't allow them to be changed. Like it's a different level of credential. But I think we actually got to the point where we were talking about when you wanted to make that change, you would actually end up needing like two different accounts logging in to both endorse it. Yep. So, so it's like, you know, another person was involved in this decision.
2: Yeah, exactly. That, that was the thing that, that I remember you, you and, Regular run as listener, so was able to you know Dana touched on on all those things and was absolutely right on it. Yeah, and yeah. yeah.
1: it's just interesting to see that you can basically set up Azure functions to fire whenever a security rule change happens, and then decide what you want to do. Do you want to log it? Do you want to kick off an email? Do you know, do you want to reset it? Like, there's there's lots of choices there. So your 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 IT security folks are getting a lot more tools to be able to protect you from you know doing serious harm to your systems and then then they're more comfortable giving you privileges to start doing more of that stuff like Mm. that my old policy of like don't have access to production it just doesn't seem to make sense anymore if we're getting into these security models
2: yeah and and even the, the the classic questions i often get from from a lot of my developers are when when i'm working with things like what is the best way to do it and i think that it's the the DevOps mindset of being able to do deployments and, and having all your infrastructure as code kind of go along with it um, are really the the new way of thinking among this. And I know um, there's, there's probably a handful of reasons that are like 50% bored with, with what we're talking about at this time because I think that it's it's too much on the operation side. Sure. Um, but there's, I really can't enforce enough how much like this is the new way of thinking and if you're bored right now, you're probably not doing a good job paying attention because this is um, the new way of living in the world that we're in. Well, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm bored, but I've definitely not been
0: participating in the conversation because cause my experience as a developer is pretty limited, you know, and, and you guys are talking about all the, the infrastructure. I'm really glad to know it exists, though. I'm, I'm really glad to know what tools that I can use as a developer to make sure that I'm secure.
2: Sure, and and I don't I don't mean to, to dissuade it either, but I, I'm just saying that I think a lot of dev- developers are under this like false sense of reality that either this doesn't exist or this this qualifies under the not my job category. Yeah,
0: we just want to know what to you know what API to call. <laughs> That's pretty much what developers want.
2: Yeah, and, and and maybe this is this is the point of mentioning like a lot of these things are great because um there there comes a point where there there doesn't have to be a lot of thinking like. Um, a lot of the new like Azure storage account private networks and things like that um, are great features that the IT operations people can turn on that are fantastically 100% transparent to your development team. Nice. Um, I can I can turn on the, the Azure private network stuff and basically what it does is in the background it rewrites it so it says, hey, I want a storage account um, URL to my, you know, the production foo storage XYZ container. And behind the scenes, it's actually rewriting all those rules. So it says, all right, I can only get access from production through this URL. And when I um, submit to Azure my XYZ production foo storage account link, it's actually doing it to my 10.1.20.30 address instead of the 50.60.244.355 production, otherwise production URL for it type of thing.
1: Right. So are you advocating for devs to spend some time at Azure Security Center?
2: Oh, yeah. Azure Security Center, um, double, triple check even the common Azure settings to everything to make sure that there isn't a more secure way um, that they can get access to something and to be very, very... Um, both cognizant and aware of the things that they can do to help help increase their organization's security like Mm. all of those encryption settings um, shared access signature settings like just pulling through the things like in every Azure storage account right now there is a firewall and virtual network link and if you know that your production environment runs in a specific Azure virtual network, make sure that that you're talking to your IT apps team about those settings and making sure that they're all set right so that um, you aren't accidentally exposing or even creating a threat surface for your teams to for, for that data to be outside your organization when it doesn't need to be type of thing.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, makes it makes a lot of sense. This is a I got a ton of links for the show. Like, there's mm. a lot of stuff to to look through here. It's awesome,
0: Dan. Thanks. Uh, I like I said, um, uh, it's not my uh, area of expertise, but I'm really glad to know there are guys out there like you who are telling us that we need to be more diligent and where we should go to to make it so. Oh, absolutely. So thanks. Sure. Happy to be here. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by POP Studios Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmit a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a Life is hard.